From the studios of KBOO in Portland, Oregon, and for the Pacifica Radio Network, this is Progressive Spirit, Spirituality and Social Justice. I'm John Schock. It's now 53 years since the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. delivered his iconic I Have a Dream speech. So even though we face the difficulties of today and tomorrow, I still have a dream. It is a dream deeply rooted in the American dream. I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. I have a dream that one day on the red hills of Georgia, the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners will be able to sit down together at the table of brotherhood. I have a dream that one day even the state of Mississippi, a state sweltering with the heat of injustice, sweltering with the heat of oppression will be transformed into an oasis of freedom and justice. I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin but by the content of their character. I have a dream today. I have a dream that one day down in Alabama with its vicious racist, with its governor having his lips dripping with the words of interposition and nullification, one day right there in Alabama little black boys and black girls will be able to join hands with little white boys and white girls as sisters and brothers. I have a dream today. So what has happened to the dream? That's today's question. Today we are going to talk about race and racism. It is a conversation that is long overdue. White people need to recognize that racism exists and we need to be sickened by it and we need to dismantle it. No excuses, no pretending, no defensiveness. Where do we begin? I'm speaking in particular to white people, white like me. Many, many white people don't understand how their skin, their white skin, gives them privilege, privileges that black people do not have. I mean, I, I talk to white people who came from humble beginnings, and they don't understand the concept of white privilege. But I think that because, because of the way we've constructed a society in this country, that if your skin is white, you have, a, uh, you have an edge, you have a, a step up above any person of color, and particularly black people. So one of the things that white people have to do is to begin to to be more, particularly Christians, have to be more interested in being Christian than being white, and and for me that's a that takes mm. repentance, that takes 
turning yourself around, changing your mind. Today's guest is Dr. Catherine Meeks. She's a retired professor of sociocultural studies at Wesleyan College. She's the editor of the newly released book, Living into God's Dream, Dismantling Racism in America. Her book contains chapters from eight different contributors, including herself, some white, some people of color, some men, some women. The first chapter is written by Luther E. Smith, Jr. Dr. Smith is Professor Emeritus of Church and Community at the Candler School of Theology of Emory University. This is a paragraph that stood out for me. He began the chapter asking if racism exists. Yes. Then he asked why. He wrote that it exists because it is embedded in our history and our institutions. He writes, quote, Centuries of racial discrimination and injustice are the foundation upon which current social and economic institutions stand, end quote. Then he wrote this. Racism also persists because a large segment of the population benefits from it. This explains why and how individuals perpetuate the system of racism even without their conscious awareness of the implications of their actions. The existence of racism relies upon it having the personal commitment of some and the inaction of many. End quote. I can say for a fact that I have been inactive for too long. I don't want racism to exist or to persist. I don't want to be part of the inactive problem. I want to be a part of the active solution. I think you do too. Otherwise, you wouldn't have listened to me for this long. Keep listening. My guest is committed to fostering dialogue. She says, I keep talking about race because dialogue has to continue. Catherine Meeks is with me via phone from Atlanta. Welcome, Dr. Meeks, to Progressive Spirit. Thank you. It's great to be with you. In 1963, Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. gave his famous I Have a Dream speech. Fifty-three years have passed. What, in your opinion, has happened to the dream? Mm. Well, in the first place, I think that that speech, while it was fantastic and full of great phrases and drama, it didn't, it really was, we had a lot of, we had a long ways to go from from what he was talking about in that speech to get to the, to actually get to it. And I think that in many ways we've made changes. Yes, indeed, we've made changes in this country around the relationships between blacks and whites and the status of black people. But we didn't make the kinds of changes at the very core in our society that needed to be made so that we wouldn't find ourselves in in 2017 having to deal with the kind of polarization and uh, spirits of discord that we see currently. So, I, you know, I, I think it's a, it's a funny kind of thing because you don't want to get caught in saying, well, nothing, everything's the same because everything's not the same. Many things are different, but this, the difference hasn't, um, it hasn't penetrated the system in the ways that it needs to because we still have such horrible problems around poverty and issues of incarceration and education. So those are there's a lot of work left to be done, even though we are better off than we 
were in 1963. Well, in 2008, with the election of uh, Barack Obama, uh, people thought we had entered uh, perhaps a post-racial America, that it had ended. Now, I'm talking about white people thinking that. Um, but uh, but the response to his presidency and the, and the rise of just overt uh, racism uh, should have changed our mind on that, don't you think? Absolutely. And, and as a matter of fact, I, I've, been, I've been the primary uh, leader of the Dismantling Racism workshops that we do in the Diocese of Atlanta because the Episcopal Church requires everybody who's in a leadership position to take such workshops. And early on in that work, for the, over the last four years when I started it in 2012, people were saying, well, you know, maybe if we didn't talk about this so much, we wouldn't have a problem. But now folks have stopped that. I mean, it's clear we've got a problem. Nobody's making this up by just talking about it. There's a serious issue there. And if people have been paying attention throughout President Obama's administration, the racism stood up to be uh, recognized a lot more vividly than it had before, because, you know, we were pretty good at pretending before, but I think there were a whole bunch of white people that just could not get over the fact that a black family had moved into the White House. I mean, that was sort of like the the last straw, you know, and, and so people just became uh, more honest about where they really were. And quite honestly, I prefer the honesty to the pretense. Someone said to me, I prefer my racists out in the open. Yes, because, you know, well, who and what you're dealing with. And when people are pretending in, to be one thing in your face and then stabbing you in the back, it's difficult to deal with that. But honesty, I mean, you, you know, you can deal with honesty. I used to tell my kids that all the time. Just tell me the truth, and then we will see what we need to do after that. In the chapter, in uh, one of the chapters that you wrote in the book, uh, Living into God's Dream, the chapter is called, Why is this black woman still talking about race? Uh, yeah. You write about uh, repentance, uh, changing one's mind. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about the difference for white people and black people in regarding uh, repentance in terms of racism? Yes, I think that, um, you know, many, many white people don't understand how their skin their white skin gives them privilege, privileges that black people do not have. I mean, I, I talk to white people who came from humble beginnings, and they don't understand the concept of white privilege. But I think that because, because of the way we've constructed a society in this country, that if your skin is white, you have, a, uh, you have an edge, you have a, a step up above any person of color, and particularly black people. So one of the things that white people have to do is to begin to, to be more, particularly Christians, have to be more interested in being Christian than being white. And, and for me, that's a, that takes mm. repentance. That takes turning yourself around, changing your mind. African Americans have internalized, I think, the whole oppress, the oppression stru- the structure. We struggled against it. We see ourselves in the light of it. We don't want to own that because it makes us sound like we have some deficits, which we do. When you look at what's happening in our inner cities, you can see some evidence that we have internalized some negative things about ourselves. And I think African Americans have a responsibility to really own that internalized depression and turn, turn away from it, turn around from it. So we've all got work to do. And I also believe that we do that work best 
particularly people of faith, do that work best in community with each other. Well, yeah, I wanted to focus on that. There was a, a sentence uh, in that uh, same chapter in which you wrote, I'm convinced that the work of dismantling racism and oppression cannot be done without great injury to the soul unless the worker has the capacity to pay attention to the ways in which the effort is supported by both the external community and the spirit within. Dismantling racism um, is no easy task. Uh, can you talk a bit about paying attention to spirit? Yes, yes. I think that, you know, we we get into the habit of, of thinking that uh, in very simplistic terms about complicated issues, race and the dismantling of racism happens to be very complicated and complex, and we want to oversimplify it. So we just we want to say, well, if we just do this, that'll take care of it, or if we just do that. I think that we have to look at it in the the as a complex issue and an issue where we do need each other to work on this. White people need to be in relationship with black people and other people of color, and black people need to be in relationship with white people. We can't just stand on our sides of the fence and make up our minds about who people happen to be without really getting to know who they happen to be. And it's not that easy for black people to do this because many black people don't have any opportunity to be in real relationships with white people and vice versa. So I think the, the internal side, the spiritual side, is declares, I mean, it commands that we do that, that work of building relationships and also dealing with our own selves. I mean, you can't just be mindless about this. And it's not a matter of just making somebody change a law or change a rule. Laws need to be changed. You know, we do need to have the freedom to go get on the bus or go get lunch wherever we want to, but it takes more than just changing laws to get this work done. Well, you know, um, oftentimes um, white people will ask when uh, confronted by a workshop on racism or whatever it might be, and they'll say the first thing, well, what can I do? What can I do? And I, I don't want to be too cynical, but I, but I think, and I'm speaking personally, that that question is, is hiding the discomfort. Um, I don't want to hear the painful stories of race and my captivity and the wounds of it. I just want to not feel guilty and do something. It's right. part of the doing of dismantling racism, allowing oneself to feel this discomfort and this wound. Absolutely, and and the, the and and being willing not only to feel the woundedness yourself as a white person, understanding how you got wounded by racism and the structures that that have followed it, but also being willing to be in relationship with black people. Or I'm just focusing on white and black because that's the biggest piece of this issue. Mm-hmm. Even though brown people now figure into it, but we still have more baggage around black and white than, than we do anybody else. And and being willing as a white person to walk alongside a black person and let them and experience their journey with them without you trying to tell them what that journey is. You know, when I start telling some white people what it's like to have black sons and wonder every time they leave the house if they'll come back home alive or if they'll get killed by a police officer, you need to be willing to accept that that's my reality without trying to explain to me why I shouldn't feel that way. Yeah. You know, because I do feel that way, and what, regardless of what you think about it, it is how I feel. So white people have to become more willing to not edit the stories of black people. and We have to be willing to, to, to hear where people are. And too many times when we try to tell our story to somebody white, 
they have to fix it for us because it's painful and they want to get past the pain. But, you know, we have to be willing to be in the pain together. If you're just joining us on Progressive Spirit, I'm speaking with uh, Dr. Catherine Meeks. She's the editor of a volume called Living into God's Dream, Dismantling Racism in America. And uh, one of the uh, figures that came up again and again in this volume uh, is Howard Thurman. Uh, and Dr. Mm-hmm. King called Howard Thurman one of the most influential people in his life. Uh, what yeah. does Howard Thurman and, and his work mean to you? Oh, my goodness. I, we don't have enough time for me to tell you, <laughs> but let me tell you what I can quickly. I met Dr. Thurman before he passed away in the early 80s, and that was one of the most delightful experiences I ever had. Dr. Thurman's work is so important, and I would just encourage your listeners to read Jesus and the Disinherited and any other volumes of his that they can find. He wrote 21 books in his life, so he was a black man from Florida who really understood the necessity of finding out who you are yourself, of really understanding yourself as as a child of God and to be really um, focused and grounded in that in that uh, faith about who you are in order not to let the external world shape you in negative ways. And that's part of the process, I think, of getting well, period, but particularly around race, that we have to, you know, what do we bring to the equation? And you do that. He talks about all the time about listening for the sound of the genuine in yourself, becoming an authentic person. It's difficult to do that unless you realize that you, that the culture doesn't define you completely. It impacts you, and you have to uh, factor it in to your understanding of yourself. But you do have to get to the core of who you are, and that's the spiritual part. And, and when you get to the core, you can go out in the world to make changes and take a real person with you rather than somebody who isn't quite sure where they stand and have back on things like my skin is white or I've got money or I'm powerful because those are all illusions in many ways. And so Thurman, Thurman really contributed to helping us uh, talk about and think about what does it mean to be an authentic person that's created in the image of God and to stand in that faith and understanding in spite of what's happening external to yourself. And, you know, I just, he, he was just the most amazing soul. Catherine Meeks, uh, my guest, Living into God's Dream, Dismantling Racism in America, is a book, a collection of, of chapters and essays. Can you talk about the contributors to this volume? How did you select them, and, and what's the central contribution of each one? Yes, well, the contributors are made up of people who are both theologians and uh, a couple of lay people and a social worker and a retired psychologist and, of course, my bishop, uh, Reverend Rob Wright from the Diocese of Atlanta. And each of these people have a, uh, a great message in terms of looking at race through the lens that they have, their, their discipline gives to them as well as their own journey with it. Uh, there's a, I tried to have a balance between African Americans and white people and men and women, and I feel pretty good about how that worked out. And then, of course, this edit, it's uh, the foreword, foreword was written by my good friend Jim Wallace from Sojourners Community. And so, what I what the hope is for this book is that it will create a more honest 21st century 21st century 
conversation about race, and I thought that all these contributors were able to offer a, a chapter that would help facilitate that process. And, of course, Dr. Luther Smith is a Thurman scholar, so his perspective is, is deeply rooted in Thurman's way of looking at things. And Dr. Larita Coleman-Brown is a psychologist and also a person who's interested in Thurman. So there's a lot of Thurman in this, in this volume and, and, and then other perspectives that all can be used, I think, to help people uh, frame their own conversations in parishes and uh, churches. Uh, the book, I hope, will be used for book studies. There's a study guide in it to help with that because we, the main objective is to help people uh, get into a, a real conversation about race and a new conversation that's not, uh, you know, rooted in, well, aren't things better and, and just those kind of oversimplified ways that we like to talk about this, but to really get into it at a deeper level. And you uh, serve uh, the Diocese of Atlanta as uh, chair of the beloved Community Commission for Dismantling Racism, and, and your last chapter is about getting dismantling racism right in Atlanta. Can you talk a little bit about that uh, experience? Yes. yes. Uh, when I took over as chair of the commission, the, 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 the general convention of the Episcopal Church has mandated that everybody who's a leader in the Episcopal Church has to participate in dismantling racism workshops in order to be a leader in the church. And so many people in our communion do that, uh, don't do that as well as they need to, and our diocese was not doing it so well when I took over as chair. And one of the things I decided to do was to reorganize the, the uh, work, the workshop, so that it had, we start with the celebration of Holy Communion. We uh, uh, acknowledge ourselves as people of faith and God's children and who have a serious illness called racism, and we are, can work on it because we have this commitment to something bigger than ourselves. And that change has just made the work transformative because I think the work in the church is different from the work in corporate America, and we don't need to be apologetic about our faith. We need to stand in that space and say, because we have that faith, we're, we, we have the courage to do this work because no matter how bad we feel, we have a commitment to something bigger than ourselves. And so our work has been transformed in this diocese, and we have done a lot of um, sharing with people across the country about what we're doing and how we're doing it. And we're moving into a whole new arena now in going uh, forward with uh, remembering people who were lynched in, in, in the South, primarily in Georgia, so this this is another piece of the work that the commission is doing, and we keep pushing ourselves to get deeper and deeper into it. And folks are willing to go on that journey and get deeper about it. And I'm just really thrilled about that. And uh, as you mentioned, part of uh, what what's needed, you as we were talking about Howard Thurman, is that sense of spiritual identity, that identity of what it is to be a human being that's beyond the categories of white and black, and, and one spiritual tradition can help in that. That's exactly right, and and the commitment has to be to something other than power and money, because that's, the, you know, I mean, money and power are okay if you keep some perspective about them, but if that's all you're if that's your basic way of being in the world, then you've got some pretty big problems anyway. And so as, a, as people who have faith, and we've made this commitment to 
something bigger than ourselves, we can we can afford to be honest about where we are and who we are and to realize that we're not going to throw each other away just because we got this sorry history that we're trying to overcome. And I think that's really important because I think fear is a big reason why people don't do this work. I want to uh, take just a turn to politics, though, in a second. What does it mean uh, now, uh, positively perhaps even, uh, negatively with uh, President-elect Trump in the White House and really his platform? of um, yeah, well, white supremacy. Well, you know, it would it would be nice if we didn't have to deal with some of what we probably will have to deal with going forward, but in many ways I just see this as a both a challenge and an opportunity. And I think that it that we, the mirror is held up to for us to take a good look at who we are as a nation. We are polarized and we have these issues that have been more underground than than they are now and and that for me as i said in the beginning of our conversation having honesty having clarity about where we really are and that we're not going to keep on acting like we're somebody we're not those are as far as i'm concerned those are positive things and i think that people who would be uh, more likely to kind of sit back and not say anything like for eight years people should have been much more upset about the way President Obama was treated than we were. But now it's like, okay, it's too bad. We can't be quiet anymore. We've got to stand up and say something. So, so, in, so I don't find myself being as much in despair as some of my friends have been about this election. I think that, um, it, that it's an opportunity, and I, I think that we need to, 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 to get ourselves together and, and rise up to stand in the space and see what we need to do in response to this new administration. Dr. Catherine Meeks has been my guest, and she's offering all of us an opportunity uh, with her book, Living into God's Dream, Dismantling Racism in America, a great book for a study group or an individual uh, to begin to do the inner work and the outer work of dismantling racism. Uh, Dr. Meeks, thank you so much for this work and for uh, spending time with me today. Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm deeply grateful to have this opportunity to talk. You've been listening to Progressive Spirit. Progressive Spirit is heard weekly on stations across the country and is distributed through the Pacifica Radio Network. The website for more information and links to podcasts is progressivespirit.net. I'm John Schock. You're welcome.